This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here with the latest edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. This week, we'll start with a conversation about the intersection of Black Lives Matter and the travel experience, the pandemic of systemic racism that doesn't take a vacation when you travel. I'll be talking with Tariro Muzuzewa about her New York Times piece on the great American road trip from a different perspective and traveling while black. The things most of us don't feel, see, or experience, a much needed conversation. Then. How can travel make a difference in the black experience? My chat with Brian Oliver, the founder of Be More, See More, the Baltimore-based organization that combines education and travel. It provides better opportunities and worldviews to young black men in Baltimore. And then, switching gears, we'll check in with Gene Sloan. He's the senior cruise reporter for The Points Guy, with an update on all things cruise ships. Will anybody be sailing in 2020? He's got some surprises about schedules, and even getting refunds. But first up, Toriro Muzuzewa. You know, it wasn't difficult for me doing the travel that I do, the amount of travel that I do, the locations where I go, to make a connection between the behavior of travelers, whether it's Ahmaud Aubrey or Breonna Taylor or George Floyd. And we've now had an intersection where, where Black Lives Matter intersects in the most intense ways with the black travel experience, which is the black experience, just happens to be on the road. And joining me now, reporter and New York Times contributor, Tariro Muzuzewa. Did I get it? Muzuzewa. I got it. You got did it. Did I get it? I got it. <laughs> yes, All right. You 
I'm going to say that five times fast and you'll really be impressed. Uh, and, you know, this is always being talked about, maybe because of the uh, of the pandemic, that, you know, when we come back and we travel, we're not going to go long distances. We're going to not fly over bodies of water. We're going to take the, you know, the great American road trip. But for so many people of color, the great American road trip is not an attractive thing. That's true. Um, for a lot of people, you know, I think we've all been hearing at this point for months, really, that after um, after the pandemic, when people start traveling again, They'll want, you know, a trip that they can control. Um, you can control how many stops you have when you get into a car. You can control how many people are coming with you. You can decide if you want to take a detour, sort of the freedom that comes with that. Whereas if you're getting on a plane, you know, it's the airline's telling you where you're starting and where you're stopping. You're going through security. You're walking through probably a crowded airport. At this point in time, less crowded than usual. But those are some of the differences and why a lot of people have told us that, you know, driving is way more appealing. But of course, you know, for travelers of color and black travelers in, in particular, that sense of freedom that we've been told about that comes with the great American road trip isn't quite there. Um, so I wrote this story sort of looking at some of the anxieties and concerns and like layers of planning and extra thought that a lot of black Americans have to go through in order to go on a road trip in this country. I mean, bottom line is, uh, when African-Americans vacation, it's not a vacation very often from discrimination that travels with them. Right. You know, and we've sort of seen that in different ways over the years, right? Like how many times have we seen videos and heard complaints from people saying, from um, African-Americans saying, you know, I checked into my Airbnb and, you know, somebody who lives nearby called the police because they saw black people checking into an Airbnb. So sort of people are already concerned about stuff like that, um, or even just feeling like people are looking at you suspiciously just for being in a certain space while you're traveling. Um, and also, you know, we've seen, even on airlines, right, we've seen these stories over and over again of African-Americans being targeted in various ways. Sometimes it's just the language that's used to talk to, uh, uh, to, talk to them. Um, other times it becomes more physical. So it's sort of, it's such a complicated subject. And it's one of those things that people don't seem to really think about unless they're African American and actually dealing with it every time they get on the road or get on a flight. You're right. And now I go back to the, to the movie that many people saw, won a lot of awards, uh, The Green Book. It was about a journey through the South. Uh, and, uh, you know, and The Green Book, by the way, existed. But let's not kid ourselves that, you know, when I was growing up, I saw that book. I, 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 it's not something that was a surprise to me. What was a surprise to me was that it took so long to tell that story. Um, and yet that book still got, or that movie still got criticized because it told the, the, uh, the story through, through the white point of view in many cases. Right. So the Green Book, um, for anybody who might not know, was a guide that was um, created by an African-American man in Harlem in the 30s, and he would update it. Uh, he updated it through the 60s, and it had, it was essentially a guide. It was like a literal book that was green that had, you know, um, directions for hotels and motels um, and people's homes that Black people could stay at and be safe. It had restaurants and various activities uh, printed within it. And it was sort of just to make sure that Black people traveled safely. And the movie um, from 2018 shares the same name and has sort of that outline of safe places for Black people to go. But 
some of the criticism it received was that it really did focus on this friendship and in a way uh, between this white man, this white driver and the black musician he drove around the around the South. Um, and you don't get quite as much of like the realistic experience of what that would have been like, some of the tension between them um, and sort of how difficult it really would have been to be a black man traveling through the South. The movie sort of a calmer note uh, of ease. Um, and also one of the criticisms, you know, is that when you watch the movie, you actually don't really see the Green Book. I think maybe you see it once or You're twice. Right. And both times it's like held you know by what? a white character. You're right. You're absolutely right. Now that you mention it, yeah. But what that movie did, though, was it let people know, even though the point of view is a little skewed, uh, that this is how you had to travel if you were of color at that time, but the connection wasn't made, and maybe it hasn't ever been made until recently, that that still exists today. Exactly. And although, you know, the Green Book isn't still being printed, we see, you know, on social media groups and group chats, sort of a similar thing where a lot of Black travelers go in and they say, hey, you know, I went on this road trip from this place to that place, and this is where I stayed. These are the places that I checked out. This is where we ate with my family, and we really liked this place and that place. Not so much this place. We felt welcomed here or there. And then other people sort of say, oh, you know, that was my experience too, or, you know, I didn't know about that. But it's sort of like this modern-day green book, and it's kind of sad that people still need that, but there is this very real thing that we see sort of playing out on, you know, on a larger level with these protests that are happening right now and regular killings of Black people by the police and violence towards Black people that makes them feel that they have to sort of have all of these precautions and find places that are safe to be. But you know, when, 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 when white folks like me plan our travels, we don't plan it that way. You know, we, we plan our travels like, oh, that's a nice place, that's a nice place, let's check this out, or I read it in the magazine, or somebody recommended it, or my travel agent booked it. We never get to that second level that people of color have to get to is, am I gonna be harassed there? Am I gonna be pulled over there? Am I gonna be thought of that I don't belong there? Am I gonna be safe there? And so it really changes the, the dynamics, I suppose, of how African-Americans have to even plan a trip these days. Oh, definitely. Um, you know, in my reporting for this story, I talked to so many African-American people, um, some who travel with families, some who travel with friends, um, women, men, older, younger, so many people. And, you know, although their experiences varied in detail, a lot of their concerns were really the same, right? There was a woman who has two little kids and she said, you know, my husband and I have considered getting a dash cam so that if we are pulled over and things turn deadly, there's video evidence of it. You know, I remember uh, when I was a correspondent for Newsweek and I was sent to the Houston Bureau and I was told I was covering Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, and Arkansas. My name is Greenberg and I'm from New York City. And I remember going into Idabel, Oklahoma. Most of you listening to the show have no idea where it is. So if you have an atlas, you can look for it. And I walked into a bar and the minute I walked in, it was like the Cleavon little character in Blazing Saddles. I walked in and everybody looked around and one guy looked at me and said, you're not from around here, are you? I said, uh, no. And I walked up to the bar and the bartender said, what's your name? And I said, uh, Peter Greenberg. And the place went dead silent. And the bartender was about 6'4". And he leaned over and he looked at me. And I had no idea what was coming, but I didn't, I wasn't happy about it. 
And the words that came out of his mouth, I'm not making this up, were, you a Jew? And at that point, I figured, okay, this is where I die. And what I realized was that I hadn't crossed over to the next wall yet. They had just never seen one. And when they realized I wasn't going to rape the cattle or marry their daughters, we could be friends. But that doesn't mean if you're African-American, you get that second chance when you're coming to an area that they don't know who you are. That's what we're talking about. So given that, Tariro, how do people... And it's, it's a two-sided street here, right? It's, it's how do we understand the black experience to know how to anticipate those negative touch points to be able to change the story. And then until that happens, how do African-Americans even plan a trip to, ba- to maintain some semblance of safety and, and realism? Okay, Peter, I think I'm going to answer your questions in reverse. Um, if that's okay. I think, you know, for for African-Americans planning a trip, there's a lot of extra thought that has to go into it, right? For a lot of people, it takes months to plan out the trip. You can't just get in your car in a few days and drive. Um, You sort of plan out where you're stopping, which towns you're driving straight through. If you're um, going to be getting gas somewhere, then, you know, maybe you should use your debit card so that you don't have to deal with any possible issues if you go inside the store at a gas station. Right. So just a lot of extra thought and extra anxiety. And um, I think a lot of white travelers don't really think about that and what that looks like um, for black travelers. But one thing that's worth doing, and this is something that in my reporting, somebody actually mentioned that she had this experience where she was outside of a gas station and there were, you know, two cars, both. It was a group of um, young white men in two separate cars and they were friends um, and they sort of boxed her in. And they started kind of just verbally abusing her. Uh, And she said there was a white family nearby and somebody spoke up and said, you know, like, what are you doing? Like, you know, what's going on? And she said she really felt like that was something that probably saved her life. Um, I do sort of think people have this instinct sometimes to just mind their own business. Um, And I think as travelers, a lot of travelers know that people get stuck in peril all the time and it could make a really big difference to have somebody who speaks up. I think it also helps to sort of just think twice before you decide to like call the police on somebody. I think often, um, as we've seen in the last few weeks, sometimes people have this instinct. I think sometimes white people have an instinct to just call the police. And for a lot of black people, when the police arrive, that doesn't mean there's going to be a resolution. If anything, it often adds an extra layer of anxiety and fear because lives are now in danger. Um, Let me me ask you this. Let me ask you this because in the era of post-George Floyd, where, you know, talk about a wake-up call that, you know, that resonated globally. Do you really think that we are in a position now to truly make things better? And if we can, what's your advice? Ah, that's a tough question. (laughs) I'd like to think we are in that position. I think we're seeing a lot more people really, um, a lot more white people understanding that, uh, Black people's relationship with the police, relationship with the system um, is completely unfair. Um, and a lot of people are now more willing to confront that. I think I've had a lot of conversations through my reporting and just personally with um, people who are sort of saying, it's, I had no idea this was happening. The good news is, I think we're getting the idea. My thanks to Teruro. And then, I've got a startling statistic from the inner city of Baltimore, where the majority of black men have never been as far as even 45 minutes from their home, and what travel can mean. My conversation with Brian Oliver. 
it's George Floyd. And did he change the world? Did he change the travel world? Did he change the travel experience? What about the intersection between Black Lives Matter and the travel experience? Serious things to discuss. And uh, we'll do that throughout the show as well. In fact, joining me now is the founder of Be More and See More. This guy was raised on the west side of Baltimore. He's still in Baltimore. Uh, he runs a great foundation, a nonprofit that works with helping people to not only be what they want to be, but see what they want to see, go where they want to go, and without restrictions and with as much ease as possible considering where they are, who they are, and how the rest of the world sees them. Brian Oliver, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. You know, you heard my introduction. First of all, tell me a little bit more about what you're doing with uh, with the high schoolers. Okay, yeah. Uh, Be More, See More is a nonprofit organization uh, empowering minority male students in Baltimore City through education, mentorship, and travel. Uh, we figured if we could combine education along with the exposure uh, to these young men, we'd encourage them to become local and global leaders and role models just through their experiences and everything that they will learn over the years. Sure, and not to mention the fact they get a chance to see the world. Absolutely, which is something that is not really heard of coming from here. Now, let's put this in context because, you know, not many people realized, right? Not many people were aware that the black travel experience, the African-American travel experience, the person of color travel experience was something that has been a problem uh, in terms of inherent racism, discrimination, economic discrimination, uh you know, we, we can go through the entire list of uh, gerrymandering if you want. And now we've been given the opportunity through the most unfortunate of events to come to grips with this. How are you dealing with this with those students so that those things can change for the better? Yeah, it's definitely been an adjustment for all of us. I am uh, in a way glad that these discussions are coming to light because it'll allow more opportunities in the future, especially when the world gets moving again, for more students to actually get out of their communities and see not just the world, but their state or their country, because it's, it's so rare. And I, I can recall my own self as a young boy growing up in Baltimore City Public Schools, and I went to what you could consider some of the better schools here. We just didn't have the same opportunities as students in other uh, areas of the city. Uh, I'm sorry, other areas of the state and other areas of the country. I can recall, you know, growing up and saying where I wanted to go in the world and where I love to visit, and people were telling me, you know, oh, my high, uh, my my middle school or my high school took us there, you know, when I was in sixth grade or the ninth grade. And like, you didn't have that amazing. opportunity. Yeah, no, it, it wasn't there, right, at all. Look, let's let's call it what it is. Anybody who thinks that Brown versus education in 1954 desegregated the schools in America is delusional. America's schools are still segregated. Yes, definitely. So as people are now emerging from this terrible, terrible point in American history, as they're emerging from the COVID-19 crisis, as they're emerging, if they can, from the economic crisis. Let's not forget that we're dealing with 44 million Americans right now who have filed for unemployment, and a disproportionate number of them are people of color. So as all these things combine to create almost a perfect negative storm, what do you tell the students as to how they can travel, where they can travel, and how they can help to educate people along the way? You know, our main goal from the beginning was just to show them another uh, way of life outside of their community. And we knew that, you know, it's sad, but the average kid, the average adult from Baltimore hasn't even gone to Washington, D.C., which is 45 minutes down the road or so. 
And we knew that if they could get this at an early age, it would only show them that the possibilities are endless. And I feel like now, you know, when you're out in groups and if they see a group of young African-American men from Baltimore, they might, you know, people might not think, oh, here comes trouble. I think they'll now be intrigued and want to know their story and their background and what brings you here. How are you enjoying it so far? And what can we do to make this a better experience for you so that you don't have to walk around on edge, but feel welcome and, you know, more at ease while exploring these areas. You know, Brian, I I guess I'm pretty lucky because my mother was a strong believer in the public school system uh, in New York City. And the school that I went to in junior high school was 98% black and Puerto Rican, and then there was me. And it's an experience that I never would regret for the rest of my life. I've always been thankful for it. I mean, my biggest achievement in my life to this day was I was the one white guy who made the baseball team. (laughs) I was like, (laughs) whoa. Uh, But, you know, you bring up Washington, D.C., our class uh, went on our first class trip to Washington, D.C. I was 12 years old. But that didn't mean that 98% of the class that was African-American was on that trip because they couldn't afford it. Right, right. And and so they didn't have that experience. I'll never forget that. But I was lucky enough to have it. I was really lucky enough to have the experience of being in a school where I was able to immerse myself, if you will, in the black experience at a time when, you know, I was 12 years old. What did I know, right? So those impressions were formed with me that were positive impressions at an early age. Not everybody's been that lucky that I was. And right now, look at the impressions we're dealing with that are not making the black travel experience anything that's uh, that's admirable. Right, and so many people are, you know, are saying, wow, I never thought about this. And now I'm realizing what I neglected over the years to even sit down and think about or to talk about with, exactly. with my family. So it's opening a lot of eyes. And I mean, we we can only hope that out of these conversations comes a change of uh, mind and attitude. Brian, before we run out of time, give us the website. The website is bemorecmore.org. Thanks, Brian. Baltimore may be a port city, but like all U.S. port cities, there aren't any cruise ships departing from them these days. And Gene Sloan from the Point Sky tells us not only why, but maybe when cruising will return. My next guest, an old buddy of mine, we've traveled the world together, first when he was at USA Today, and now he's with the Point Sky. And uh, he's their cruise expert, the, uh, the estimable Mr. Gene Sloan. How are you, sir? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. You know, if you didn't know any better, you would say that the cruise industry is dead in the water. Their ships are at idle all around the world in ports, some of which we don't even know where they are. Uh, And that the only ships that have people on them are the ships that still have crew members who can't get back home because of other quarantine rules and regulations. And they're sort of like, you know, lost at sea for a while. It's a terrible story. But for consumers... uh, are the cruises coming back? I keep on hearing announcements that are then retracted, that they're going to start cruising in August, then they're not. Uh, my guess, Gene, is that we still have to deal with the Centers for Disease Control no-sale order, which doesn't expire really until July 24th. And if my intuition is correct, and by the way, if, if I was working for the cruise industry, I would hope that I wasn't correct. But if my intuition as a journalist is correct, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if the CDC didn't extend that order another 90 days. The Canadians just did it in Canada. Uh, They had an order banning U.S. cruise ships, or all cruise ships for that matter, 
uh, through July, and now they've extended it through the end of October. So what is uh, what does your reporting tell you? Yeah, exactly. That's and that's sort of what you're feeling is what I'm feeling. I, I think that, you know I hope I'm wrong for the cruise industry and for people like to cruise, but I see you know what we've heard out of the CDC is uh, is not good. The feelers we're getting out of them is is, uh, is there it, uh, the sense is that they're going to want to push this back. And of course, like you said, we see Canada do that. We've seen Australia do that. They've said they're, they're not going to let cruise ships back for quite a few months. Um, we've seen some other countries do that. So. I would expect that to happen. Now, of course, we're talking about the big ships that most of your listeners would know, Royal Caribbean, Carnival, those kind of things. Um, the CDC rules do not apply to very small ships. We're talking about ships that carry less than 250 people, including crew. And what we may see, it's sort of a tale of two cruise industries. We may see, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm certain we're going to see, in the next few weeks to months, some of the small, very small operators come back. But, yeah, as far as the big ships, I, I, I think it's a pretty good bet we're going to see that push back, and it could be many months until some of these ships come back. Actually, the, the other issue is some of the big lines have already canceled even beyond July 24th. So, you know, yes, they in theory, if the CDC does not extend that, uh, you know, that date, they could they could start cruising, say, in August. But there's many ships already where sailings are canceled into September, November, even, you know, October, November, you know, towards the end of the year. Now, one of the things that happens on this show every week without fail is one of the big touch points that's negative in the travel industry right now. It's not particular just to cruise lines, it's air, it's airlines as well, is the, abil- is the inability of my listeners to get their refunds on cruises that yeah. they didn't cancel, but that the cruise line canceled. Have the cruise lines done a better job of this at all? No, no. You know, this is, it's, and I hear it from our readers too. People are incredibly frustrated. This is one area where, you know, the, the cruise line is really having a tough time. And, they, you know, they, they they have a good excuse. They, Of course, it, it's the volume of, of canceled trips and refunds and vouchers that they're trying to process here is really unprecedented. They have teams that do this all the time. People cancel all the time. But, you know, Carnival, the brand alone, has has had more than a million people that they've had to process refunds for. And, you know, they, whatever it is, 50 people, 80 people doing this, it's it's still, each one has to be hand done. It's, nothing's automated about it. You think it should be, right? You think they push a button and all the money just flows back through the credit card. But it has not been happening. Um, it's incredibly frustrating. It's uh, in, in, and what's been happening is as they've canceled more and more. I think you know initially they thought, oh, we'll cancel 30 days, and we'll cancel 60 days. Now there's some, like I said, some are canceling out six months on some ships. The volume continues to grow, and they keep falling further behind. So you have people who, you know, even people still who can't, who had their trip canceled in March have not gotten their money back. Ooh, not pretty. And at the same time, may no. I just say that all the major cruise lines went out to the capital markets and got amazing amounts of liquidity in the billions of dollars to protect them from not sailing, meaning they can actually not sail until next January and February and still be a going concern and not have to file. So the cruise lines yeah. are really hoping for their future bookings um, starting in January, but that doesn't take into account all the money they owe people who were just sitting around, who didn't get a chance to go cruising at all because the cruise lines canceled. Well, that's it. And they, they you know, they owe huge amounts back. Now, they, they do have the money, and that's the, uh, well, I should say, so most of the big brands that people will know 
are part of these big publicly traded companies, and it's fairly transparent. We know what their financial condition is, and we can go and look at look at how much money they have in the books. And like you say, they've been able to raise money in the capital markets. You know, Royal Caribbean, Carnival, Norwegian Cruise Lines, and all their sister brands, Princess, Celebrity. They have the money in the bank. They they are going to get this money back to people. Um, they have plenty of money to make it. You know, for many of them, more than 12 months. 16 months with zero cruising and giving all these refunds back. So people shouldn't be worried about that. There are some small brands where it's really a black, a black box. The brands that aren't publicly traded, we don't, we can't look at their financials. Um, you know, so far we haven't heard anything, but um, that is, that is an issue. And we have heard with some of the small brands where the money is coming back very slowly. And that does worry me. Um, but, you know, we'll see. Okay. Now here's the big, bad question. Gene, when cruising does come back, are we saying goodbye to, let's say, the buffet? Are we saying goodbye <laughs> to large social gatherings in confined spaces? Can they actually limit the number of people in a pool or a jacuzzi? Uh, what's going to happen to their entertainment experience where, you know, the, the cruise ship, as big as it is, isn't that big? And, you you, you know, are we going to go back to the old days of cruising when you had first and second seating simply to maintain social distancing? Yeah, yeah, you know, it, there's there's going to be a fair amount that changes, and I, uh, you know, one thing I've been advising readers at the Points Guy, who some of them have this choice: do I take a voucher for Cancel Cruise or do I, do I take a, a refund? And I've been advising them to take the refund, and one reason is we don't know what cruising is going to be when it comes back, at least initially, you know, in those first six months, say, until until there's a vaccine, until there's a treatment for this illness. You know, they, that we may see some of these things put in place that are, are, in some cases are quite severe. And so, you know, the question is, do you really want to go on a cruise? And, and like you say, the buffet as you know it, at least in the short term when cruising comes back, is, is gone. I mean, there, the, that buffet space will still work. You'll go into the buffet, but there'll be people standing at the stations who will serve you. Um, there, there's no, going to be no more just running in, grabbing a sandwich off the thing and running out. Um, and the issue of social distancing is going to be a tough one for cruise lines. So, you know, we've, we've actually seen, this is really interesting, in the last week we've seen one river ship in Germany start back up. And it's, it's nothing an American could go on, because right now it's tough for Americans to go to Europe. But, uh, and what we saw there is, I think, what we're going to see when more cruising comes back, which is your, it, they, they open, the pool is closed, the spa is closed, the gym is closed, um, they have walkways painted on the floor, one-way walkways through the ship so that you don't bump into other people. So, you, you know, this side you go yeah. you go this way, and this side you come back. Crazy. Um, We've been talking to Gene Sloan, the senior reporter on cruise travel for the Points Guy, and I promised uh, we'll take some of your calls. So I kept Gene on because we got Sharon on the phone from Connecticut. Hey, Sharon. Hi, Peter. Um, I My question is about uh, a cruise, Norwegian Cruise Line. Um, they won't refund in cash the full amount of the cost of our cruise. It was scheduled for May fifteenth, twenty twenty, out of Boston. NCL eventually canceled due to the pandemic, but they canceled at the last minute. We canceled on March tenth, twenty twenty, due to the pandemic. They canceled three weeks before the scheduled cruise. Um, the reason we canceled on March 10th was we had warnings from CDC, U.S. State Department, doctors, state of Connecticut, state of Massachusetts about the pandemic, and they all said do not go on a cruise. 
We learned that NCL completely canceled on their own on Friday, April 24th, three weeks before the cruise was to leave, and offered all booked guests at that time full refunds. We were told we canceled under penalty, so we could only get 50% refund, 50% cruise credit. Oh um, we did. Right. I know. So let me let me stop you right there for a second, okay. Sharon, because we've got okay. Gene Sloan on the phone. Okay. Gene, this is not an unusual story, is it? No, and I, you know I feel for you. This is it's been very frustrating for people, and this what you're describing exactly what happened. So if if you canceled a trip, but if people canceled a trip because they're worried, rightly so, about the coronavirus as it was breaking out, you fall under the normal cancellation policies and what they were doing. You know that you, so you could get. If you can get anything, you you get a you get the credit, or like you say, you can get fifty percent refund, fifty percent credit to, to get the full refund. So what happens is they cancel themselves that same trip. You were on that trip, even if it was a day later. I've heard from some readers who that happened to. In that case, yes, they would give you the the hundred percent credit uh, refund, or in some cases, you know, you could choose a voucher that was even more than one hundred percent, one hundred twenty five percent. And uh, but what they're not doing is letting is letting you go back. Say you canceled a few weeks earlier, like in your case and say, well, look, I want that refund, too. I want that other credit, too. It's frustrating for people. A lot. I think in your case, you were so close to the deadline. I mean, March 10th, as your point, that was at that point, the CDC was already saying you should, people should not be going on cruises, and it was just days later that cruise lines began shutting down. Um, but they All did right, not so, Gene, here's my question. Here's my question. What recourse does Sharon have now to go back and get the remainder of that money? You know, it's uh, other than... You know, they're, they're, unfortunately, there really isn't a recourse. Would, you know, we've we've tried to go to bat for people. People have called their agent. You can make a, a personal plea, but they're not. Well, I, I have one. I've got one. And that is this. Did you book this through a travel agent, Sharon? Uh, yes, it was actually um, for a like a, a, a group that was going because they had some entertainers on board that everybody okay. liked. I got you. So here's my question. Where's the travel agent based? She's in Rhode Island, and she tried, and she said NCL absolutely wouldn't budge. I mean, I could try again, but... Listen, I love travel agents. I think they are unsung heroes. They Mm -hmm. work so hard to get their clients their money back. But the question is, are they the travel agent for the cruise line, or are they the travel agent for you? And with all due respect to the woman who tried so hard, you should let her know that you do have one other option, and that's to file a small claims court action against the cruise line and the travel agent, because when we sue people, we name everybody, and claim Mm -hmm. that you didn't receive a service that you contracted for, and then bring in all the documentation of the CDC and the states and everybody. Uh, My experience has been that in many cases, and this may not be an exception, uh, the small claims court judges, many of them are trying to get their money back. (laughs) Uh And so you're going to have a very receptive hearing. uh, Mm -hmm. And you know, if you sue them and they don't show up in court, you automatically win. You get a judgment. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can also dispute this on the credit card. In many cases, that'll be denied after an interim credit is issued, then they charge it right back again. Right. Uh, So my guess is at this point, if you really want to, you know, roll the dice and take the shot, Try small claims court action because it's certainly under $7,500, which is usually the limit in small claims court actions. That would be my guess to do it now. Which small claims court, though? We live in Connecticut and right. um, NCL's right. in, in Florida. Ah, but does NCL have a sales office in Connecticut? I bet they do. Oh, I don't know. They might have an agent. Uh-huh. They might. 
And don't worry about NCL being in Florida. You have to you sue the travel agent in Rhode Island mm-hmm. because, and that's not too difficult to drive from Connecticut. The bottom line here is you do have some rights here. Yeah, okay? it's just so disappointing. I know it, and you're, and as Jean told you, and I wholeheartedly agree. Sadly, Sharon, you are not alone. But tell me what happens when you do that, okay? And let me know. My thanks to Jean Sloan. Karira Muzuzewa, and Brian Oliver for joining me today. And thank you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more interviews with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review this Ion Travel podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. You can also go to petergreenberg.com for the latest in travel news. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Farian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.